I believe that we are ready. I believe that we are going. I believe that I am ready, as usual, for Stan. I think we're gonna get this here podcast on a roll. I'm ready, yes, I'm ready to talk here, man to man, man to man. Hurry, get your act together. Everybody's here waiting, precious people, in our draftsman pod. Whoa, whoa, too loud, man. Hi, how are you doing, Marshall? Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Okay, then we're ready to go. We sure are. No frivolities. Now bum flufferies. We had a project this week. What was it? Are you talking about Art and Fear? Yeah! Oh, okay. We were going to read a book this week and have <laughs> yeah. a report on it. That's right. And my head is full of David Bales and Ted Orland's book, Art and Fear. Do you want to tell me what you, you've been doing this week? Oh, no, I don't want to no. tell you what I've been doing because it all comes down <laughs> to preparation for teaching at colleges, which has been a lot of stuff that has to do with their new learning management systems and uh. learning canvas and all that kind of thing. It's been, it's been a lot of stuff that has been really boring to hear about and not all that uh, enjoyable. I will say this, we are in an age of badly designed software. <laughs> I know that you love certain programs and so do I. But the, the, it seems like when a learning management system, something gets imposed on a group of people who have to learn it in order to do their job, uh, a number of people feel like, I think I might quit this job because this is not designed for the user. Which learning management system are you guys using? Did I already mention it? No. You, you just mentioned if I didn't, a learning management system. What is yeah. it? Come on. Uh, no, no, I'm not going to tell we you. We can believe it out. I'm not going to tell you. These are big companies that so have what? people that they can. These are big companies that have people they can say, "Hey, it would only cost what thirty thousand? No, maybe it's about eighty thousand, hundred thousand dollars to have this guy meet with a convenient accident for having oh, dissed our big on. company." Are you kidding yeah, me? <laughs> are you kidding me? No, I, I'm not really worried about that. But I will say that if if you are a teacher teaching for a college and you know what I'm talking about, go ahead. Put your life at risk. In the comments, let us know which learning management software or system you are having to conform to. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, we got through that and right now I'm still alive. Uh, Garbage truck's coming by soon though. Oh, really? I thought it was more like t two or three o'clock. We have three garbage pickups here. Oh, in the same day? Yeah. Do you not have three in one day? No, we have, we alternate weeks. Trash is oh. every week. Recycling and compost is every other week. I didn't know that. Wow, okay. you guys get recycling and compost every week? Yep. You're so spoiled, man. My recycling gets filled up so high every other week. Yep. Uh. We're up here a little higher Oh, in, a, oh. in OC. <laughs> How about you? How's your week been? Pretty good. Uh, my son turned three. Cooper is three. We had a little birthday party. I mean, not much of a party. We couldn't invite a lot of people, you know. It was just my parents, right. my uh, Melissa's parents uh -huh. um, and Melissa's brother 
who has two kids. So it was great to see Cooper playing with some kids. Wow, this is interesting that there's the 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 lockdown is lasting long enough to where this is not just an incident. It's becoming a a an era, a period of time where it makes me wonder how this will be looked back on. Yeah. I mean, if if this lasts for a year, that will be a third of Cooper's life at by this point, you know. Yeah. Happy birthday to him for yeah. having had two kids to play with. Yeah. Oh, I gave him a haircut. I gave him my haircut. <laughs> <laughs> a father imprinting. Yeah. Except a little bit exaggerated. It was like my hair, a caricature of my haircut. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I'm actually really Every- happy with it. We'll show some pictures of before and an after. Dude. I'm pretty happy well, with how I did. I ha- there, there's a few parts that I messed up on, but in overall, I think he looks pretty good. Okay. Well, okay. How about uh, how about this book? <laughs> this book. Marshall, I have I think I wrote down like three warnings that I want to get to before. <laughs> um I do want to warn people that we read this book once. Um what you are going to hear are our initial thoughts. Um we haven't had time to develop, at least me. I haven't had time to develop any thoughts, examine it. Um, there might be parts of the book that I don't completely understand, probably most of it, because there's just so much. And so, the stuff I'm going to say in this episode is just, they're just kind of surface level thoughts on the book. Okay. And they're just ideas. It's just going to be a conversation between two friends who just read a book. (laughs) Okay. Well, I, I should mention that I have read this book twice. Yeah, but when was the first time you read it? 17 years ago yeah. or so, right on the heels of art, uh, excuse me, of the war of art. I read them around the same time and I actually liked it better the first time I read it. You liked war of art better the second time. I did. So, the opposite experience. And I don't know that this is a reflection on the book. It may be a reflection on me. Mm-hmm. Probably. When I read it, I was definitely dealing with what this book is titled and what it is true to its name. It is about art and fear. And I think I was more likely to need it back then. And in the past 17 years, I've been preaching a lot of what was in this book, which is that that fear inhibits and inhibition can get in the way of doing our best work. And therefore, we must embrace the failure that we're afraid of and let it happen over and over until we've desensitized ourselves to that fear enough to plow forward and then go into the mode of critiquing later, but not in the act of creating. And I think I've got that so in my understanding now that when I read it this time, somewhere about a fourth of the way through, I just started to feel like it was too true to its name. Mm. It was so dwelling on art and fear that it's like, okay, let's get beyond the fear part. We've established the problem. This is appealing to people who are experiencing fear in making their art. Okay, I've got this. Let's not keep digging in what the problem was. That started to get on me by the late 20s or early 30s uh, pages. I had a similar reaction. Here's my thought. Okay, so I'm I'm drawn to make a comparison with 
War of Art because we just read it and also because their objectives were so similar. Yeah. Right? They both try to help artists overcome the the battles that artists have to battle through in order to create their best work or to create work at all. Yes. Right? It's like every artist is going to have to go through all these things. Let's help you do that. Um, that was the objective. When I read War of Art, I left it energized to go into battle, to defeat this stuff. Yeah. When I read Art and Fear, I wasn't. How did it feel? It left me dreading all of those problems that Ooh. artists have to deal with. Ooh. <laughs> Instead of being energized to defeat them, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> now, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's because of, again, it may be a reflection on me and not the book, but I don't know. Well, I think if we both if we both saw something, if we both felt something, that, that it's probably there. Yeah. Okay, we've made the caveat that we were critical of this book. I was critical of this book on this second reading, but there were a number of things I liked in it. Even, you know, from the beginning, the beginning quote from Hippocrates was, I thought, an interesting setup for a book that's going to take such a negative uh, approach. Let me let me read this. This is the uh, opening what page. Page one, oh, page, one. <laughs> page one, chapter one. <laughs> page one, chapter one. Life is short, art long, opportunity fleeting, experience treacherous, judgment difficult. Well, Hippocrates, is there anything good? Yeah, there was one good thing in there. Art is long. Art outlasts the people who make it, typically. And... Uh, that was very important to me when I was 11 or 12 years old when I decided I wanted to go into the arts. I wasn't sure which arts. But when I was a young teenager, we used to watch the Three Stooges on Channel 52. It was a, an afternoon channel that we could see these things that they did on film in the 1930s and 40s. We knew that Curly was dead, the original Curly, the, the, the brother. And then... Uh, Larry died later and Mo died. And I remember when we read in the paper that they died, we went to the TV and they were still on TV doing their best work in spite of the fact that they died. And I pondered that as a teenager. Well, they weren't doing their best work. They already did it. You were just experiencing their best work. As far as we were concerned, it was happening now in this living room and we're all yeah. Keeling over with laughter at it. So there was something about it that made me realize that a lot of work, uh, the best that we can do will disappear. But there are some things we can do that will last. And that's one reason why I was attracted to going into the arts. You can, you can do a drawing and that drawing can last beyond you. There was something about that that appealed to me. It was Hippocrates' quote from what? That's like uh, from... 2,500 years ago. There's a lot of things other than art, though, that you can do that will last. You could be a scientist and you can discover new medicine and that will last. Although, I guess that could be a form of art. Uh, is it? <laughs> well, yeah, and that's one. Re that's a reason why I said that's, that's one reason right. why yeah. I went into the arts. It, it could have been something else that would last. I mean, people who build buildings, architects well, are no, artists. That is art for sure. Architecture is art. Yeah. 
Scientific discoveries, certainly. Yeah, I guess so. There, there's so many more. I, I'm thinking of some, but they're all bad. <laughs> like war, <laughs> murder well, will last. Well, if a person is a warrior, if a person yeah, there's, there's their whole thing is that. strategy, they say this is what <laughs> this is what history pivots on, and we are going to change history. So is everything art? Uh, in a way, yes. Everything is art. Almost anything can be done artfully. Yeah. <laughs> and they do, they do give a nod uh. to that later in the book when they talk about teaching. Mm -hmm. But maybe, maybe we should save that. I, 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 how would you like to do this? We should do an episode on what is art. <laughs> maybe we should do did I just, an episode. Did I just steal your words? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My criticism of this book was that the first time around, it didn't leave me excited to go through the, the battles of what it's, you know, meant to teach you. Yeah. And because of that, I feel like this book isn't good to just read once. This book is best reading multiple times and really understanding it. Mm -hmm. Not just getting inspired by it and, and feeling it out. It's really like everything he says is really thought out and it's more poetic. Like he, he condenses the information into like a few sentences that you have to think about. It, it, I mean, I guess it's very similar to a war of art, but without the motivation. <laughs> Also, without the uh, entertaining this, you know. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. That he, he was, he was, uh, Stephen Pressfield was playing a role. Yeah. And he was playing it quite well uh, of the, the, the sergeant, the, the older sibling who says how tough the world is and you'd better get to work. These two authors, David and Ted, also made the same point that you get to work. You've got to get to work. And in fact, I think what the best thing to do might be is just listen to our assessment of this. Then you can decide whether you want to read the book or not, but I think we have an obligation having come in here so critically to focus on some of the best things of this book. There were some really good paragraphs in there yeah. that were motivating, but these are two older guys who've made their living in the arts and they tend to have a crustiness and a curmudgeonliness and an awareness of how the world is not going to come to be your friend and this is not kindergarten and you will not get everything put up on the refrigerator, but don't let that stop you. If you're going to do good work, you've got to at least do work. And so there was an element in this writing that you can do it. But boy, it was filled with, with caveats of how many things are going to get in the way. And it was much more philosophical than Stephen Way more. Pressfield's. Way much more. more theoretical. That's what started to put me off, which might be ironic coming from me. But I felt like I wanted to get out of a college classroom and all of this theory and more into kindergarten. I felt like I wanted to go back to Molly Bang's book where she's going to talk about triangles and <laughs> rounding the corners and changing the colors and asking, how does that make me feel? I started to long for that. You know, but I don't feel like that this isn't necessarily a criticism of the book as a whole. I feel like it's only a criticism of the first reading of the book. Just the initial impressions. I feel like if I read this book, sorry, I feel like if I studied this book, I would probably like it more than War of Art. Yeah. I mean, my first warning in the beginning of this episode is that we read it once, this, these are our initial impressions. And I don't think that means that this book 
is inherently bad. No, um, not at all. In fact, the the first half of it, I think I texted you. I was like, I like this better so far than Art of War of Art. Yes. Then I started to. I was like, ah, no, nah, too philosophical. I need some answers. I'm I'm not getting inspired yet, and. Like, I guess the first half I felt like I'm gonna get inspired, like he's getting somewhere and then it never came and I was like, okay. <laughs> so, but I, I feel like the more I, I understand each part he makes, the more I will bring my own inspiration to it. Some people might like that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have liked Robert Henry's book and uh, in fact, somebody even said last year that you guys have recommended uh, The Art Spirit. I never recommended <laughs> The Art Spirit. I think I did. I read it in my early, late 20s, early 30s and I read it slowly and carefully and I just could not get enough out of that. It was so abstract and so kind of cheerleading with theory that I left it feeling like, okay, everybody else seems to like this. And I tried to revisit it last year, as you recall, when we were talking about reviewing it. And I didn't make 15, 20 pages of reading those pages carefully by saying, I just, this book is not speaking to me. Yeah. And yet other people, it seems to speak really well to them. So, some people I think like this approach. And I want to at least pull out of our criticisms and get to some of the things that were that we liked. Yeah. Chapter one is called The Nature of the Problem and it's how fear cripples people <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes. and some historical context. Some historical context is that in the age where the church was commissioning artists to build cathedrals and create murals and commissioning artists to illuminate books. That element of fear may not have been there the way it is now where the fear for many students is, am I going to ever make a living at this? And once you have that taken away to where you have a patron, someone who commissions you, your job is to carry through with this. You may not be as great as those other big names, but you are doing great work. It's a different dynamic now that you are in a capitalist culture of having to entrepreneur to be an artist or at least getting some big company to hire you, it's a different thing. They, they address that in the second or third page, I think. Good summary. Let's keep going. I'm going to jump to chapter two. That's fine. Chapter two is called Art and Fear. And it starts out with a quote from Stephen DeStabler. Artists don't get down to work until the pain of working is exceeded by the pain of not working. Well, at least that. It means that the suffering that you go through when you're not getting your work done is meaningful even if unnecessary. It could be alleviated by just getting to work. But that happens with a number of us. That's in one way, that's one way you know that you're an artist, is that you are so miserable not creating that you can't stand it anymore and you have to find a way. Yeah. Okay. Okay, now your turn. You tell me some stuff that you found in chapter two. My first note that I actually wrote down was from uncertainty, which is the, the final thing. Um, okay. Do you, do you have anything from imagination and materials? Okay. One of them is the difference between stopping and quitting. Stopping happens many times. Mm, yeah. Quitting happens once. 
And the only way you can know you quit is in retrospect that you really did quit <laughs> and that you didn't go back to it. Yeah. Stopping is sensible. It's healthy. It means that I need a break. I thought that was a good distinction. True. But what if you stop for 10 years? Hey, some people stop for 10 years and do come back to it, which is why you can't know until hindsight. Mm. Yeah, there are stories about that. Is it possible to quit and then unquit? Yeah, yeah. Or the act of unquitting means you never did quit. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just so tempted to be a smart ass here. Well, go ahead. What if you, what if you, you quit at like age of 15 and then you go your whole life not doing it and then you're 80 and then you pick it back up for one day and then you die? Does that mean you never quit? Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna <laughs> press on a technicality, yes, I, I'm, I told you I'm being a smartass. You have a brother who's a, an attorney. <laughs> That's true, and he's the one who's supposed to do this stuff. I mean, we uh, think the same way. Okay, l let me go back to what I was going to say yeah, yeah, about yeah. Eddie O'Connor in Psychology of Performance. He has a chapter in there on commitment, and commitment is not something you do. It's something you have done. You can't know that you're committed until you've been committed and proven that you were committed. You can't say, I am committed to this because in a way it is something you do is that you keep going, but it's not something you say. Let's put it that way. And the difference between quitting and stopping I thought was legitimate. You're doing a great job summarizing all this stuff. Well, thank you. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> he mentions in here, or they mention, that uh, uh, there are two reasons why artists quit. One is they, convic they convince themselves that the next effort is doomed to failure. Okay, why, why do it if I'm, I'm going to fail anyway? And the other is that they have lost sight of the destination for the work. They've lost sight of where this is going to go. I'm wandering around in circles. Okay, here was something that was pretty harsh for art students. Losing the destination for the work goes by another name, graduation. Well, we, uh, we dealt with that. And if you guys thought we were hard on art schools, <laughs> this book. Yeah. Well, that's towards the end. Yeah. It has two or three things in there that show how, how uh, futile it can be to look there for what's going to get you out of this. But there is one of them is that once you've graduated, you've got the post-graduation thing going, now I have to do the thing that I could have done four years ago or eight years ago, which is to chart my own path in this difficult world. You're looking at me. I'm, I'm looking at you in case, in case you're going to pick up the ball and run with it. But let me just flip, flip through here. No, I have a lot to say coming up. We just got to get through. Chapter two? Half of chapter two. Well, this thing about vision is always ahead of execution. Yeah. We talked about that in a previous episode. Ira Glass mentioned that he wished that somebody had told him that. You can always see how much better it could be than you can do it. Can you imagine if it were the other way around? <laughs> that would be amazing. Everything you did was better than you ever imagined. <laughs> it does happen. 
Yeah. I think everyone who's worked for a while has had it happen that that came out better than I hoped for. But it it's typically rare. Yeah, it's rare. And Mozart may have been an example of someone that it was happening with regularly. But they mentioned the first thing they mentioned in this book is that this is not a book for the Mozarts of this world. Right. This book is for the rest of us who have to work on it harder and run into more trouble and more stalling and terror and all of the other things. Yeah. I mean, he's, he later says though that we have a lot in common with Mozart, at least the important stuff. Remind me. He says that we share common ground with Mozart in, in, the, in the regard that he had to learn how to work on his work. Without that, yeah. he wouldn't have become Mozart. He would have just been a five-year-old prodigy that was playing genius recitals at five years old, but then never be, had, you know, never learned to actually get to work and become Mozart. Um, and because he had to also do that, even though he was a genius, he shares that common ground with us that we might not have the same level of genius as, as Mozart did, we could still be the best version of ourselves by doing what he did, yes. by learning how to work on our work. I thought that was a very good point it, it, is that whatever great icons we have of creativity is that we, we have to remember they shared human bodies. Yeah. They shared frustrations. Uh, that movie Amadeus, which is abominable historically as far as the, the real story of Mo Mozart's life, uh, it still did one thing at least that was valuable, which is that it showed that this was a real human being. Yeah. And I, I think that we would be surprised at some of the geniuses that we admire, how much difficulty they had in their lives. See, that was a reminder that it's not easy for anybody. It's easy for some people more often and even perhaps most of the time, but everybody has to share the fact that we are against gravity. I guess he he heard the the final product so clearly in his head that there was a very uh clear connection between the two there there was there was no distance with us we we imagine something and then we put it down and there's quite a big difference between the two yeah with him it probably was very close i love the fact that they mentioned several people in this book that i care about charles and ray eames were a husband and wife team that designed furniture and made films and they they were innovators in the 20th century and that quote from charles about designing a piece of furniture that it was about 1% of his process was envisioning what it would be and the other 99% was working it out into an actual piece of furniture that makes sense. The 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration maxim that so much of the work is work. Yeah, there's a quote in here that's something like a successful piece could have been just minutes ago inches or very close to collapse. Um, that art is like beginning a sentence before you know the ending. He tells a story of how, I forgot who the author was, but uh, did like seven revisions on the book, just rewrote it seven times. Oh, yeah. And that the sixth one was really bad. Can I, can I, can, can I read that part? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Go ahead. Tolstoy in the age before typewriters rewrote War and Peace eight times and was still revising galley proofs as it finally rolled on the press. William Kennedy gamely admitted that he rewrote his own novel Legs eight times and that quote, 
Seven times it came out no good. Six times it was especially no good. The seventh time out it was pretty good, though it was way too long. My son was six years old by then, and so was my novel, and they were both about the same height. <laughs> yeah. And then their next sentence is, it is, in short, the normal state of affairs. Yeah, I like the idea that art is like starting a sentence before you know the end. It definitely hits on that, uh, that notion that a lot of artists have that the good artists could see clearly what uh, they're about to make. And it's not necessarily true. It might sp start with an idea that develops into something good. Clearly not Mozart. <laughs> now, how do you mean? Cl clearly not Mozart. That you're, because of the, the confidence that he did know where it was going. Yeah. Let's just assume he did hear the final product in his head. Okay. He might not have heard the final product the first time he heard it in his head. He might just be such a genius that he's able to work it out in his head before putting it down and analyzing it. He might hear it and analyze it in his head, make an adjustment, hear it in his head, analyze it, make an adjustment, and he might be able to go through that whole planning and revision process in his head because his brain is just capable of holding so much for some reason, I don't know. Um, it's kind of like writing, like, you know, you can, you can write a really well-written paragraph, a poem, an entire poem maybe, without actually writing it down on paper, right? Like, mm -hmm. like normal people can hold that many words in their head and remember them to, in order to revise them and, and, and go through that cycle in their head before they write anything down. Some visual artists are, and, and, or music makers are able to just do that at a much larger scale, you know? They can compose a 20-minute thing in their head, whereas maybe we normal people can only do like 15 seconds <laughs> before they start to lose it. Do you know where I'm going with this? I do know where you're going with this. And I'd like to add something because this is, this is important, especially when we've got people who are not yet professionals. Let me summarize with one sentence. Okay. I feel like everybody goes through that process. Whether it's in their head or on paper, everybody goes through that same process. So, don't feel bad that you can't do it in your head because you can still do the same thing on paper. That's right. When they say this is the normal state of affairs, is that accepting that in advance. There may be people that can have 20 minutes of material in their imagination and hold it, but they typically don't. There is a reason why you get it out on paper. There is a reason why you want to navigate with not having to hold, spend all of that energy holding it in your imagination when it's just so easy to put it out there and look at it and see, ah, oh, now that relates to this. Uh, there, there's another thing about that. Uh, the balance between improvisation and planning. Uh, since we're talking about composers, Mozart was apparently extremely improvisational. In fact, uh, there are even stories about how, uh, what about the, what, what the piano is going to do during that concerto? Uh, I'll make it up when I'm out there in front of the group. Uh, the the jazz improvisers really ran with this in the 20th century. Beethoven was also a great improviser, 
Almost all the great composers were great improvisers, but Beethoven had a difference from Mozart, and that is that he would sometimes stop on a piece, set it aside, come back to it much later. He was he would do it bits at a time, uh, think it through. The difference between composers who are more improvisational, they like the energy of the risk that goes on, and musicians, composers who like the opportunity to fuss with it a bit is a bit like the difference between Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. Did we talk about that? I don't think so. A number of bands were at their best in front of audiences. The, the energy of it, the, the performing of it was uh, brought a certain power to it. And they could get that in the studio too. But then there were bands like Pink Floyd where their strength was that they would take almost a year to record an album because there were all sorts of decisions made and micromanaging the sound of it. They are two different modes. Now, one of the things that they point out in this book, they even have it is that, that second option, the Pink Floyd option, the thing that attracts people to studio art as opposed to live art, control is not the answer. People who need certainty in their lives are less likely to make art that is risky, subversive, complicated, iffy, suggestive, or spontaneous. What's really needed is nothing more than a broad sense of what you are looking for, some strategy for how to find it, and an overriding willingness to embrace mistakes and surprises along the way. Simply put, making art is chancy. It doesn't mix well with predictability. Now, that spectrum, I want more predictability, I want more risk. That is one of the most important spectrum in the process of creating. People have different needs, but people whose need is for predictability too much, they create, they create bland and safe art often. And people who are lovers of risk can make very exciting things, but they tend to experience more pain. Yeah, he, he, he concludes that by saying tolerance for uncertainty is the prerequisite to succeeding. Yeah. So being being brave enough to go into it even though you're not sure, take on the risk of it failing is a prerequisite. If you can't do that, you're probably not going to succeed. I can go with that. Yeah, that it's if you're not even willing to take this on and it might fail, therefore I can't. It's unlikely that you have what it's going to take if you're going to shrink at the very first thought of it. Yeah, if you don't even attempt it, there's no way you're going to succeed at it. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of makes sense. Like, I don't know how you could possibly argue with that. What's next? Fears about yourself is the next big chapter here. I'm listening now. I don't know where, where along this he said it, but th I wrote this down and I really liked it. Fears about yourself prevent you from doing your best work. Fears about others prevent you from doing your own work. That's good. So, either way, fear prevents you from doing stuff. <laughs> Fears about yourself. So, maybe insecurities, thinking you're not good enough, um, being, you know, seeing how good other people are and that you don't have that. Um, that'll prevent you from doing the best stuff. If you fear what others might think of you, you start catering your work towards them and their thoughts. And now it's not your work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. 
I think that kind of summarizes this whole big chapter. Keep going though. You said you had a lot to say yeah. about this chapter on fears about yourself. He has a section in this on pretending. Um, I liked that part. And he says, you may feel like you're pretending to be an artist. There's no way to pretend you're making art. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Yeah, I I like that. (laughs) The general idea that I got from his take on pretending is that it's not good to pretend. That if you don't ever come to terms with yourself as being yourself, that you pretend to be someone else. That you're always going to be doing that. You're always going to be pretending to be someone else. You have to be yourself. I, the whole time I was reading it though, I had this, just this idea that I remember when I was a student, I would always pretend to be someone else and it really did help me learn. Now, I I know that this might be a difference, what, what I'm saying, what he's saying, pretending to be someone when you're learning it might be different than pretending to be someone else when you're trying to create art. But still, I, I, I never kind of, maybe I missed that part, but he never, I, I never read a part where he says it's okay to pretend every once in a while, at least in the early stages. You know, doing master studies, you, you kind of have to pretend a little bit sometimes. And when I was st- um, studying with Jeff Watts, I would always pretend that was him. I would like, I would try to get into his mind and feel mm-hmm. like, okay, what, what would it be like to have his confidence? And kind of getting into that mindset would give me the confidence to put down those strokes that I thought, that I wanted to copy him doing. It, it got me into the mindset that I could be as good as him because I'm pretending I am him. I, I don't know. I, I, I felt like pretending was an important part of my learning. There is great value in pretending, I think. Mm. Uh, but here's where we run into the problem of defining terms. And a good deal of the second part of this book, or at least the middle part, was where the quibbling could be about what you mean by the word art. Right. There was a, a good deal of that. And that's that's part of what bogged me down. That's part of what I didn't like about it is that there were some statements in there about art that really rubbed me wrong. But yeah. I don't want to take us off onto that yet. The next part was on talent. Here's another quote yeah. by him. Uh, by definition, what you have is exactly what you need to produce your best work. And that made so much sense to me. It's like by definition, what you have right now is exactly what you need to create your best work that you are capable of right now. Right. How could it be otherwise? Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, there's no way you can argue that. <laughs> there's no, but the fact that it's so obviously true is a little, it's kind of motivating, I think. Like, okay, I guess I am capable of producing my best work at this moment. Mm-hmm. Might as well focus on that. There's, you know, this is something we can control, is being able to produce the best work that we can at this moment. Why focus on the stuff we can't do? I understand. I mean, I, have, I actually have an answer to why, why focus on the stuff we can't do. Go ahead. As a, what, student, what, how... as a student, it's important to focus on that stuff so that you can ex, uh, expand on what is your best work. 
Okay. What is your possible, what is possible for you to do? Okay. You have to constantly be figuring out what you can't do and how to get there. But when do you stop that? When do you stop being a student and trying to and just start tr focusing on producing your best work at the moment? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I think even in discussing this book, we are starting to pick up some of this chasing theoretical trains of thought that I come back and say, well, why should I put a lot of energy into chasing that? Where does it leave me? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I totally get you. I felt the same the way. The thing about talent... But it could be fun. By definition, talent, whatever you have is exactly what you need to produce your best work. And then a, uh, a couple pages later, they say talent is a snare and a delusion. In the end, the practical questions about talent come down to these. Who cares? Who would know? <laughs> and what difference does it make? And the practical answers are nobody, nobody, and none. I believe in talent. I know that that's not all that popular. I do believe there's such a thing as talent, but this is something I've concluded since about 20 years ago. What difference does it make? Yeah. Because if talent is not real, get to work. And if talent is real, <laughs> yeah. get, get to, to work. work. I'm glad that they summed up the talent thing by saying, let's move on to the responsibility of the artist, which is to get to work. Okay. What's next? Perfection. Oh man, this was one of my favorite stories. Tell us. Basically, there was an assignment, two groups of students. One group of student was going to be graded on making one perfect pot. They had to just focus on this one pot. The other group of students was going to be graded on quantity. They had, you know, they would get an A if they produced 50 pounds of pots, a B if they produced 40 pounds of pots. The quality didn't really matter. It had to be a pot. One might assume that the people that were focused on this one perfect pot would have the best pot. But it turned out that because the people that were making lots of pots were getting way more practice in making pots, and yeah, the first several might have sucked, but after 10, 15 of them, they actually started getting pretty good. You know, they, they started learning from their mistakes and they started learning how to make it better. Just on accident, even though they weren't trying, they just learned how to do it better through practice. And their last pot was better than that one perfect pot that that first group tried to make. Yeah, that's a good story. Yeah, it, it's basically just talking about Kim Jong-gi at this point. <laughs> that's why he's so good. Remember the story you told about the guy who had the dream of the gallery that he went in and all of this paint, these paintings were the best paintings he'd ever seen and he wished he could do paintings like that and one of his friends told him, you did do paintings like that in your dream, in your imagination. They were in your head. Well, and you had to be asleep to where you didn't have your guard up for them to crop up unfettered. You seem like you're, you're questioning this. I mean, I don't agree that this person actually did create them. Your dreams can sometimes trick you. You think that you're seeing a brilliant painting, but you're not really seeing anything. You're feeling a brilliant painting. You envisioned a brilliant yeah, painting. Yeah, you see the idea of a painting that looks good and your brain kind of just fills in the gaps, kind of. 
but you're not actually seeing a brilliant painting. Norman Rockwell talked about how almost every piece that he did didn't come up to the level of what he hoped it would, but he had some vision of what he hoped it would be like and that's what kept him going. Yeah, it's a starting point. I do think that it is a starting point. It's the thing that starts the pregnancy, which is easy. The hard part is getting through the pregnancy and delivering. The conclusion I think to this part was that it's perfection, aiming for perfection can paralyze you. Yeah. And that imperfection is actually a very important ingredient in creating art. I think there was a, it's an essential ingredient. I think that's exactly what he says. Yeah. Perfect is the enemy of good. <laughs> well, nobody's going to accuse us of, uh, of perfection. <laughs> of perfection. The next section is an annihilation. <laughs> Another positive approach. <laughs> yeah. It's the idea that, you know, some artists identify so closely with their own work that if they were to cease producing, they would cease existing. Your work is you. Yeah. I forgot at what point in this book he said it, but I like that the idea that your work is more like your child. It's not you, it's your child. So, you have to see what your work needs. Um... And give it that. Have, have communication with your work. I love how they ended that chapter. I love that part. And it, it was, uh, this is the ending of chapter three. The lessons you are meant to learn are in your work. To see them, you need only look at the work clearly without judgment, without need or fear, without wishes or hopes, without emotional expectations. Ask your work what it needs, not what you need. Then set aside your fears and listen. The way a good parent listens to a child. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to look at it is that we are in dialogue. You are not me and I am not you, but I want to hear what it is that you're concerned about. That's a healthy relationship and to extend that to any work of art that we're on, I really like that. That was one of the more positive notes up to this point on page 36. Anything else about Annihilation or do you want to move on to magic? I want to move beyond Annihilation to magic. <laughs> okay. What he means by magic, it's like this thing that you see other artists do and it feels like a trick, like a magic trick. It's like, whoa, how'd they do that? You know, you don't know how they did it. So, it feels like a magic trick. Um, every artist has something about them that feels like magic to someone else. I feel like I disagree with parts of this. I'll read a quote. It doesn't matter that you have or don't have what other artists have. Whatever they have is something needed to do their work. It wouldn't help you in your work even if you had it. Their magic is theirs. You don't lack it. You don't need it. It has nothing to do with you. Period. Wow. I don't know, man. I disagree. I don't get it. It feels like he's saying not to compare yourself to others, not to look at others' magic, Simply because it's going to make you feel jealous of them, feel bad about yourself. But I don't know. I feel like that's an important part of learning is to look at how others do things and learn from, you know, figure it out. See if you could add that magic to your own magic. I mean, we do it all the time, right? As students, we have to. We're not reinventing the wheel every single, you know, every artist doesn't reinvent every wheel about painting and creating art. You are causing me to leap forward okay. to my, my biggest 
my biggest disagreement that is right along with what you're doing. I don't like to, when I read, disagree. I like to understand. Right. And, and really ingest what the, anyone has to say before even assessing it. But I couldn't do that in this book because there were too many assertions that I had to say, okay, 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 I'll grant you that. And then there was this one on page 67. A good work of art inevitably calls the viewer's own belief system into question. Right, yeah, 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 I remember that one. Why? I just don't agree. That means that every one of those Beethoven sonatas is not a good work of art because it doesn't call my, but well, it, it may at some point do that, but I just will not accept that claim. And I started to realize when I came to that claim that there is throughout the 20 pages previous to that and the 20 pages after that, there is an assumption that I accept that term, that art has to knock down the walls of any preconceptions. And I, I'm all for art knocking down preconceptions. And I know that there are powerful innovations that do. But to put that as a criteria for what makes a good work of art, that is where I started to feel like I don't want to argue. Yeah. I don't want to argue with this anymore. And there's so much of that tainting what art is that it becomes, it become, it became a kind of obnoxious to me at that point. It felt like that kind of quote would come from an art critic instead of an artist, like a museum curator of modern, you know, yeah. at, at the, who works at the MoMA. Yeah. Instead of an artist who, what kind of art do the authors make, by the way? Uh, they're photographers. I looked them up mm. and, uh, and they, one thing I appreciate about them is they're not, they mentioned, they mentioned Schubert in here three times. They mentioned uh, musicians and they mentioned sculptors and they mentioned other people who they know. They, they knew about Pablo Casals uh, and his love of the cello. They, they, they were quite familiar with a number of the arts that, that impressed me because they're serious consumers of art. Let's go through some of the most important parts of the, the, the next section of the, the rest of the book. Let's and, do. And finalize it. There's a positive thing following uh, uh, on page 69 is that the way they ended one of these things is the world is not yet done. The world is not yet done had to do with you are a part of the world right now. You are, if you are working on your art, it, it is yet to be seen what you will contribute. The idea that there will never be another Mozart, I don't think that. I think there are always geniuses coming out. And the most exciting thing is to see that you don't know who the geniuses are when they are in their formative stages. And so there is something that's exciting that even if I'm not going to be one of the best in the world, I think I can do something pretty good. The world is not yet done appeals to that. History is yet to be written. And that is, those are the kind of statements that get you excited. Rather than focusing on the fear, okay, the fear, the fear, the fear, the fear. It's like, okay, let's take a, a look at it as the opportunity. Yeah. I also feel like Mozart is given an unfair advantage to being perceived as a genius. Um, he has uh, the advantage of being there first. But how do you, how do you mean first? When we look at uh, musicians today, 
it's really difficult for us to say they're as good as Mozart because Mozart was there first. It's really hard to compare them to him, even though they might be as much of a genius as Mozart. It's really hard to say, yes, they're equal. You know, that is something I could challenge, but again, I don't want to start picking at it. I want to get at what you're saying. Quick question. Okay. If Mozart was reborn again today and, and he had the same genius in him, the same work ethic, and he, the type of music he was creating was different. It was more modern. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say rock and roll. <laughs> it's not that modern, but whatever. Something we can both talk about. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you think that people would say, yeah, that rock and roll artist is as good as Mozart? I think that if Mozart were reborn today and he was working in a different style, he would be extraordinary at whatever style he was working. Yes, And I say that, yeah. I, I know his music well enough. I know those sonatas really well and a number of the other pieces to know that there is a regular of, oh, oh, wow, whoa, wow, wow, listen to that, listen to that. And the, the amount of familiarity and surprise that he brings to it is not limited to the classical era with a C. It is, it is just a way that he had of taking notes and messing around them with them with an inventiveness and an insight that if you put him in any musical style, he would have found a way to do that. That wasn't so my I question. I do think that, that wasn't my question. I think it's obvious that he would create great work. My question was, would people think he's as good as Mozart back then? <laughs> Mozart is a bigger than life icon. Yeah. That everybody recognizes his name, even if they don't know any of his music or, or practically any of his music. Yeah. So yeah, we're we're holding up this big, flaming, amazing myth. Mozart is a myth, the mythological yeah. musical genius who that it all just spontaneously came out of him. So, we're comparing ourselves to that, which is I think why they started this book by saying this book is not for Mozart. Yeah. I have another kind of a big general fight to pick with this book uh, and it's not the fault of the authors. It's just that it was written in 2001. Um, oh, yeah. It was written before social media, you know? Yeah. I mean, not really, but before social media became huge. You know, Facebook, yes. Facebook was started in 2004, um, three years after this book was finished. Um, these authors didn't grow up in an age of internet. <laughs> right. Um, and so, a lot of things, a lot of assumptions that are made in this book are made because they lived in that world and not in today's world. And so, this book needs to be rewritten for today. Um, I, could, I could talk about a few things like um, he, t- he talks about how difficult it is for artists to get recognition early on in their career that um, y- a lot of artists have to die or something before they, before they get recognized. I don't think that's true anymore. Social media changed that completely. Artists get famous at age 15 on social networks before they're ready for it. It's the opposite problem now. So, talking about that problem is pointless because it's not a problem anymore. It is now the opposite problem. We have to talk about that one. I agree. Also, it's a lot easier to make money with your art now than before. 
everyone can be an entrepreneur now and, you know, have their own tiny business that supports them. They don't have to be recognized by museums and, and the critics or anything. They can have their own little following on social media and they can sell directly to them. They don't need recognition by some big company or, or big critic um, in order before they can make money. They don't need to even be in a gallery. They could do it for themselves and it's way easier now. Yes. Do you remember the part in the book where he's talking about how art used to be really culturally important? That it was, uh, you know, our utensils were crafted in an artful way. Everything around us was, was art, artsy. It's hearkening to another era. Yeah. And how today everything is mass produced. I feel like that is also no longer true. Uh, because sites like Etsy are now, you know, it, they put craft into literally anything you want. You want shoelaces that have Pikachu on them, you can get them. You could express yourself however you want. You could put art in anything in your life. Um, because Etsy allows anyone to be an, a craftsman or an artist and sell anything on it. Um, and so, we actually have... Uh, even more ability to make random things in our in our house artistic. This is another example of that this book is outdated. Yeah, yeah this is all, all of these things I'm listing are the, the fact that we are now living in the age of the internet and social media and a lot of the problems that he mentioned are not problems anymore. It might make you feel appreciative if you read this book so that you can see what a couple of old guys are, that did not have the internet turned into in their <laughs> negative view of, I think that chapter was called the outside world or that section was called the outside world. And I felt the same way that the outside world is not that way now. It's a whole different dynamic. Yeah. And you know, it might be nice to walk around with rocks in your shoes to know how nice it is to not have rocks in your shoes, but you may not want to read that part of the book. The book would could use some updating. Yeah. And I think it would change that portion from all of the fear. He did point out that your your work is out of your hands once you die anyway. Who knows what's going to happen to your work? But right now you've got all of the you've got the man. You've got the the system that says no, you're not going to get uh, this stuff seen publicly and that's all been stripped away. Yeah, I was aware of that too. Yeah. There is a lot of reason for optimism. Right for a, a young person trying to go into the arts because of that. Yeah, I think this is one of the biggest reasons that we are probably entering into a new renaissance period in the art world. I think we are. Uh, the next, I don't know how many decades, I think it's going to be a new renaissance though. So many new yeah. genius artists are going to be produced because of the internet, because there's more opportunity to learn, there's more opportunity to digest. And there's more opportunity to be discovered. Yeah. And it's a lot easier to be an artist. And so, more people will be artists. And they'll, it's a lot easier to be a good artist. So, more people will be good artists. So, it's just going to be this... It's like all these things are going to make a giant amount of amazing artists. It is happening. Yeah. The world is not yet done. <laughs> all right. I'm excited as a viewer, as an audience of art. I am too. Th th this dampened me. <laughs> <laughs> am I making it? Am I bringing it back? Yes, you are. You are. And thank you. Do you have anything to say or should I move on to another one? I did have something to say about the teaching stuff. I do too. Let's move on to that. 
Art has the dubious distinction of being one profession in which you routinely earn more by teaching it than by doing it. Uh, I don't see it that way <laughs> I thought at you all. were going to be positive. <laughs> my students who do not teach, and they were my students, almost all of them that are professional artists make better money than I do as a teacher. There's a few that don't because they uh, studios got them for cheap, for example. But I think that they are so focused on the fine art world, on the gallery world, where it's almost impossible to make a living, but some people do make very good livings in that. I'm just in a different world than they are. And you make much more money as a practicing professional artist than you will as a teacher, than you do as a teacher, unless you're going to be a freelance teacher and go with the new wave of teaching directly to students and not submitting to the structure, the system of the school that keeps you as low paid as they can keep you. Can I challenge that? Yeah, go ahead. What if you don't compare generations? What if you stick within each generation and you compare the artists and the teachers? Who makes more money? The professional artists always make more money. Mm. I mean, give me an example of where it isn't that way. Well, the current generation, it isn't that way. The teachers make more money. I'm not seeing it. You're, you, you really don't see it? The, the teachers right now who teach online, the current generation of teachers, oh, current generation. Okay. I'm not talking about the old folks that are still teaching at universities, that, okay. the, the dying method of teaching. Okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. Because art instruction as a world, is its, as Kirsten Zerngibble said, it's its own ecosystem. <laughs> Everybody's paying teachers so that they can become artists. But it's so hard to become an artist that it's easier to become a teacher. So it's just you end up doing what exactly what the university system did that they pointed out in there that you graduate and then you figure, gosh, I'm going to have to make a living. I don't know if I can make a living. I'll go back for another three or four years to do my graduate work. And so when you do that, what are you preparing yourself for? You're preparing yourself to go back into the system and be a teacher in that system that perpetuates more and more teachers until it gets overblown like it has. And yeah, I think that same phenomenon is happening online right now. That, is that what you're referring to? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Being an artist caught up to being a teacher and then, and then boom, it fell back down and now it might catch up again in the next hundred years of being an artist online, <laughs> but then something will happen and boom, teachers make more again. The good thing about teachers online though, that, uh, that makes them different mm -hmm. from the teachers at the schools who have been so exploited is that in order to pull it off, they have to be entrepreneurial. They have to be good. Online, you're judged by your quality, not by what... Uh, by your tenure. Yeah, by your tenure. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, I that think so too, that, for quality. There is a market that people really do want this, and so that's what you're going to offer. There's another thing about teaching here that kind of hit me pretty hard. I liked one thing they said about teaching a lot. Yeah, this is one thing I like but it really hit me. It hurts. It hurt, Marshall. Oh, what? Um, and this isn't a quote. This is my kind of my, my note to myself after reading it is, uh, use teaching to an advantage. Teach your students by example of being a successful working artist. Don't become an ex-artist who teaches. Share your art with your students. So, teach by example rather than just be a teacher. That hit me hard. 
because I haven't I haven't been producing any art. I've just been kind of focused on theory and and producing. I mean, I I am making a different form of art. I I feel like video production is a form of art, and I am focused on that and constantly improving it. But my first art, my first love of of creating visually good, you know, paintings, drawings, that I have abandoned for a while. That may hit you hard, partly because you're in your 30s. It hits me hard too, but I'm used to it by now. Okay. I mean, I've heard the criticism, oh, he, uh, he teaches, but he can't do it. I've heard that enough by sec from secondhand gossip enough. But not just that part of it. The part where he says that the, the best way to teach is by example of being yes. a working artist and doing it successfully so your students could see how that's done correctly. Yeah. Well, I did that for 20 some years. Mm, okay. I would come into classes with, with jobs that I was working on this week for this client with this deadline. Okay. And I would show this, uh, yeah, I, I've got to get this to them by Friday morning. I did that a lot. I don't do it now. Well, actually, I do do it a little bit now. Occasionally, I will show something that I am working on, but it's very rare because as the old proverb cautions, if you chase two rabbits, <laughs> you catch neither. And teaching takes more energy than people who aren't doing it think, and making art takes more energy than people who aren't doing it think. And it's very difficult to, to get the balance between doing both of them and keeping them both going very well. It can be done. Yeah. I've seen it done. George Pratt is one of the best examples of it that I've seen. He has just been so productive as an artist and very active as a teacher. Sterling Hundley, you know, a few others that are, have been in my life that have been uh, practicing artists and making their living with it and practicing, practicing teachers and making their living with that. Here's the positive thing. Yeah. The greatest gift you have to offer your students is the example of your own life as a working artist. Yeah. And that you are all really fellow travelers, separated only by the time you've already traveled down that path. What good teachers offer their students is something akin to the vulnerability found in a personal relationship, a kind of artistic and intellectual intimacy that lets others see how they reached a specific point, not simply that they did reach it. Uh, and they go on to say that for the student, it still may lie many years distant. I believe that and I have consciously chosen that as a metaphor decades ago that we are on the same path and I'm further down the path and so I can tell you some things that are going to be in your path but I'm not as far along as some other people on this path and therefore let's hear from them and then I'll sound it back to you. That's a very good one because it does not have any of that sense of uh, master-servant. It all has to do with fellow traveler. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that they, they mentioned that. They also used the expression, let me find it here, the single most redeeming feature of teaching is teaching. <laughs> that it is an art form. Yeah. It can be done badly, well, and in between. And it was 16 years ago that I came to terms with that because I always introduced myself as an illustrator who teaches. 
and the first time that it came out of my mouth that I am a teacher and I used to be an illustrator, it was hard to spit those words out. It was very, very difficult, but I chose to do it. And uh, I, I like that, the, you know, this is art in fear. Well, the art that you have may be something other than photographs and pictures and composing music. It also may be other things that are creative. We need to talk with David and Ted, whom you have referred to regularly as him. But David and Ted, who worked oh, on yeah, this together, right. and they didn't tell us, yeah, they, they didn't tell us much about themselves in here, but they did reveal a great deal about themselves with their their knowledge of and their respect for the history of their art. But because we've been so critical, I I do want to say that the 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 spirit of this in my at in my assessment, the spirit of art and fear, is that it wallowed too much in the fear part of it. They even made a commitment on about page 68, I think it was, that uh, the author of 66, the authors would like to employ this sentence to proclaim a self-imposed moratorium on cynicism in their future discussions. Uh, but it didn't happen. It was, it was the negativity, I think, carried through it more than I wanted it to. But if you are really struggling with fear, if the thing that you feel holds you back is, I'm afraid of failing, I think to go through this book quickly, not to belabor the paragraphs, maybe to mark some that you'll go back to later, that you will be getting a dose of, you've got a desert ahead, let me tell you some of the things about this desert and let's give you some hope and there are some oases and the world is not yet done. The thing that you do may, may be a part of changing this whole paradigm. I'm hoping that. I'm hoping that a book like Art and Fear will be less of a need in the next 10 years because people will be so familiar with the dynamic of how creativity happens that they will embrace the fear, embrace the failures in advance knowing that they're going in and that that's going to happen and that they'll deal with it when it happens. But to at least get started and to not quit. Nice. Garbage truck. Yeah, finally. Thanks for tuning in. I hope if, if this podcast has oh. any value to you, I want you to know that it was more due to Charlie Nicholson than it was to Stan and Marshall. If I, if, is it okay to say that? Sure. Stan, or, or, I don't want credit. Yeah, I don't, I don't want credit either. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. you, Charlie. Thank you for taking the time with us. But you're assuming he's going to make it good. <laughs> he's done it before. That's true. All right. Thank you, everybody. Um, the next episode is going to be about social media and presenting yourself publicly. It'll be the antidote to the antiquatedness of this. Oh, yeah, the weakness here. Yeah, it'll be the updated version of what this doesn't offer. That's true. Kind of. No, it's, it's, it's not about being an artist at all. It's about just being on social media. You're going to show the old guys around. And by the end of the episode, Marshall's going to be on Instagram. Okay, bye everybody. <laughs> See ya.